There we go, there I am. Luke chapter 8, if you want to turn in your Bibles. Luke chapter 8. We're going to continue through the book of Luke as we have been doing through much of this year, actually, haven't we? And uh, we've now reached the beginning of chapter 8, doing it in small chunks. It's good to work through a book of a Bible. It's it's good to work through a theme, through a topic. We will continue to do that sometimes. Sometimes God just wants us to, as a church, to press into one particular theme. But sometimes it's just good to sit back and work our way through a book of a Bible and you end up being confronted or challenged by things you might have avoided or might have not been aware you needed to talk about. It's always a really, really good thing to do. And today we are looking at three verses at the beginning of Luke 8 that almost feel like a bit of a side note. But because we're working through the book of Luke, we suddenly realise there's challenges in these few words and there's something for all of us to learn. And today's Uh, Today's passage confronts us with the subject of devotion. Devotion, as we all know, is not just about saying we're committed or even looking like it. It's about what goes on underneath as well. It's about the private moments. It's about what we're really like when we're on our own. Most importantly, it's about when we don't need something from the relationship. We are still devoted, nevertheless. It's about pure loyalty, it's about unwavering affection, it's about commitment that isn't self-serving, but more about the other. And uh, just to help demonstrate that, it's just, we all know what kids are like. My, my Amy, she, she's not a fan of hugs. She's 17, and she's not a fan of hugs, and it's become this running joke between us. I'll always try and dive in, for, give us a cuddle, give us a cuddle. And she always, I always go out of my way to wind her up because I know she doesn't like it. And she'll always go out of her way to wriggle free because she knows I don't like her wriggling free from my cuddles. Dad wants a hug. No, not having it. She runs away. It's quite fun. However, sometimes she'll sidle up to me. Dad, can I have a hug? And immediately, my first thought is, what do you want? <laughs> what you, yes, but what are you after? And nine times out of ten, she goes, well, funny you should mention it. You know that thing I've been saving up for and I haven't got quite enough money for it yet. And maybe if you could help me out. And I've worked out out my payment plan already. She does truly love me for who I, uh, simply for who I am, because I know she was worried about me secretly when I had the COVID. Uh, She wouldn't talk to me about it, but she talked to Jenny about it. She does love me, really. And now and again, very, very rarely, she will swoop in for a very rare hug just because. But a lot of times... She was sweeping for a hug because she wants something. I've done it too with my parents. Uh, We've all been prone to that. But this small cluster of verses at the beginning of Luke 8, they might be small, but they contain a weighty message along this very subject about the devoted life. We're going to learn of some people who are totally committed to Jesus in a big, big way. And such devotion in them has been born and been bolstered by them realising that their saviour is completely committed to them. They're just sold out to him because of who he is. They've been so convicted by who he is that their commitment to him is undeniable, it's unavoidable, they just can't help it, and it's not about what they get out of it. They can't help it because it's who they are now. They're with him because of who he is, not just what they get out of it. They're not in it to win it, they're in it because he's won them. Very different. Now, just before we read these verses, just to help us remember that Luke, as an author, is quite different to, to the other gospel writers in as much as 
He's not simply writing down his own personal experience, his own solo experience of Jesus' life on this earth and turned it into our biography, which is what Matthew has done. He wrote down his own personal experience of walking with Jesus and Jesus' story. And John, he's done done similar. He's written his own personal experience and created Jesus' biography from his point of view, from his perspective. And Mark is effectively writing down Peter's recollections. When they travelled, Peter would tell him the stories. Mark wrote it down, became Mark's gospel. It's effectively Peter's... Um, Peter's recollections of, of Jesus when he walked this earth. Luke, instead, didn't have that experience, but he's gone around and interviewed a whole ton of people and based his biography on their eyewitness recollections. And so, as a result, he's ended up with a number of unique instances that don't appear in the other Gospels, instances that do focus on women. There's a lot of these, whether these are real-life incidents about real-life individuals or parables with a female focus. He's just got these fresh perspectives that the others didn't have. And this few verses here, they're straight after an incident in Luke 7 that David spoke about a few weeks ago where a woman, she demonstrates her love and affection for Jesus in a very sacrificial way with that jar of ointment. And she performs that act of heartfelt devotion for Jesus with no other reason than for who he is. It's the same theme again. And this theme overflows straight into the following verses in what we would call chapter 8. And here we're going to read about this amazing band of women who are they're equally disciples, they're followers of the Lord, and they're going out of their way and out of their own pocket to personally support this mobile mission. The Messiah is on the move. He's doing the rounds now, and they are ensuring that no one goes without within this growing entourage that is going with him. So let's just read the first three verses of Luke chapter 8. So soon after, soon after that incident with the, the woman anointing his feet, soon afterward Jesus went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Now, what's significant here isn't just that anyone's doing this. It's the focus these women get and how involved they are that's that's the wonderful thing. We just need to remember, this helps prove the point, that there was more than just the 12 disciples. There were dozens, hundreds even, uh, many more men and women who have followed Jesus around and were devoted to him and committed to him and learned from him and sat at his feet. And these numbers, they did wax and wane at various intervals de- depending on the circumstances and many fell away later on as well. But we must never forget that when we talk about Jesus' disciples, we're not just talking about the twelve. Um, well, to be fair, while they in the majority, 11 of them, became Jesus' chosen fathers of his new baby church, and ultimately most of them were martyred for their faith too. They need to be honoured and respected for those things, absolutely. They're the twelve. But that mustn't be to the detriment of the countless others, most of whom still remained anonymous, who stuck by Jesus and had a different part to play. They lived a life of devotion to Jesus as well, and each playing a different role. So here, Luke... He's turned his eye to some of these women in particular who deserve attention in order to colour in the picture that he's he's evoking in order to ensure that the message isn't lopsided or lacking in any way. Because 
in that culture, women were generally not even to be seen half the time, but certainly not to be heard. But Jesus, he saw to it that they were honoured, that they were valued, that they were esteemed. He, he, for example, he shouldn't have spoken to women in the street, but he did. He shouldn't have taught women, but he did. He rebuked people who turned women away. He put men in their place when they were horrified by a woman in that previous chapter with its spurious reputation. She's anointing his feet, and they were aghast, and he rebuked them. And instead, he affirms her and declares her to be the one who gets forgiven. And also, women were never considered viable legal witnesses in that culture. But, of course, later on, who were the first witnesses to the greatest event ever to occur on this planet, the resurrection? Women. Women. Including one of the women who gets mentioned in this little list here as well. We'll talk about her in a moment. Now, elsewhere, Jesus, he does the same with children. He does the same with the poor, the marginalised, the stigmatised. People who have been set aside by society or by their own view of themselves. And his overarching, consistent, ongoing, continuous message is always no one, no one is excluded from my kingdom. No one is beyond salvation and all become equal co-heirs in my family. That's what he says over and over again. That's what the Bible's all about. Jesus, he levels the playing field when it comes to the birthright that he offers for anyone to become a member of his family through his work on the cross. Whoever you are, you are valued and you are wanted, whoever you are. And Jesus' church, by nature, is intended to be the most diverse, colourful community on this planet, something that the book of Ephesians, amongst others, looks at. If you want to join David's upcoming Ephesians Bible study, it looks about this manifold, the manifold wisdom of God is, is glorified through this multicoloured, diverse, everyone's invited and everyone gets to play an equal and valuable part of the church. And so here, Luke's picked up on that and he's led to ensure that we don't miss the point again with this wonderful, what, what feels like a side note, it's always, oh by the way, there were these women and here's some names, feels like that but it's clearly more significant than it sounds. He's trumpeting this choir anthem again and again that keeps surfacing throughout the Gospels that it doesn't matter who you are, whatever your position, whatever your station, whatever your reputation, you are equally loved by God. And his intent for you is the same as for any other person, to be a beloved and valued member of his family. And I don't know, maybe someone needs to really hear that this morning before we go any further. So I'm going to say that again. It doesn't matter who you are. Wherever your position, wherever your station, wherever your reputation, you are equally loved by God. And his intent for you is the same as for any other person to be a beloved and valued member of his family. So, let's have a look at these women themselves. They get mentioned for a reason. Who are they? Because there's more, to, more for them to teach us this morning. Because first of all, the passage, it tells us right at the beginning, verse 2, it says, The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. 
They'd all received healing and release from Jesus. He then goes on to mention the names. There's Mary Magdalene, who was healed of seven demons. Uh, there's Joanna, she's the wife of Herod's household manager. We'll look at them both in a moment. Uh, there's also a lady called Susanna gets mentioned, and then many others, it continues to say as well. And they've all been healed by Jesus at some point in their stories. Straight away, there's a sting even in that tale. Because there were many others that we read of elsewhere who received the same, but not all of them follow Jesus, whether at length or, or at all. We can, we, can only be, we can be in danger of only coming to Jesus when there's something we need. That's, that's the key here. Rather than because of who he simply is. Is anyone here willing to pro- admit they're prone to that? I know I can. Yeah? How many times can we go about our daily lives in a way that isn't truly as a continuous act of worship, actually? Something that's revolving around him, but rather we can be living a life that revolves around us and our foibles and our likes and our dislikes. Lives that are less about devotion to Jesus and more about a dalliance when it's convenient, when it's handy, when we need something. We may well keep coming back to him at regular intervals, but even then it's often because we've slipped up. Or we've got into trouble, or yeah, events are overwhelming us. Jesus, I need you. I'm back. Sorry I've been rubbish. Back again. I kind of need your help. That's not to say we can't do that. And he absolutely welcomes that. Of course he does. But he wants us to want more. It's that whole kind of, Daddy, you know I love you. Can I have? He's like, I have no problem talking about that. But there's something else I want to talk about. Let's also talk about the times in between when you've been so preoccupied or even forgot I even exist for a while or that you've only just come to me because you want something. Let's talk about that as well. He's after the heart. It's not just after the moment spent here. Quality time. He's after quantity of quality time. The people of Israel teach us this lesson as well back in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 33, there's a moment where God confronts them with what's really going on in their hearts. And it's similar to this, where God's people have been in Egypt, they've been in slavery, and they've cried out to God. And God heard, and God came down, and God rescued them. And then they're in the wilderness, they're heading towards the promised land, this wonderful land that's been promised to them, that's flowing milk and honey, and when they get there, that all their dreams will come true. But even on the way, they've been grumbling and they've been going, oh, we've been better off in slavery after all. Or, or they start holding the food that he, he told them not to. They needed to rely on him for their daily bread. Don't hold it. You get tomorrow's food tomorrow. Just get enough for today. They started holding it, thinking they know better, not trusting the God who'd rescued them in the first place. They've even created their own God to worship. All these kind of things along the way. And then it comes to a point where it's just like, we'll be happy when we get in that promised land. And God confronts them at the beginning of Exodus 33 and he says, basically, you think that land of milk and honey is what's going to fulfill you? Okay, you can have that, but I won't be there. And that is a massive punch to the gut. He's saying, if you think that that's what's going to fulfill you rather than me, regardless of where you're at and what your circumstances are, then you've got it topsy-turvy and you're missing the point. I'm the only one that can truly fulfill you, not this dream or whatever it might be. And for us, is there some dream life when that gets fixed, when I've got that job, when I've left this job, when I'm with that person, when I'm without that person, when I'm, when I'm, whatever it might be, is there something that we get obsessed with? I'll be happy when. 
There's something about achieving or something about receiving rather than getting him wherever we might find ourselves. Two very different things. That's a big challenge to our hearts, isn't it? Do we only come to Jesus then when we need something? Or to put it another way, do I see Jesus as beautiful or useful? He's my help in crisis. He's my, he's my means of finding purpose. He's my change maker in difficult circumstances. He's my path to becoming different myself. Well, he is all those things, but they should not be the reason for our devotion. Otherwise, our following him is still revolving around us. Our following him and our devotion is still built around me, if that's the case. R.T. Kendall, he was an American preacher, lived and served in London for many years, died shortly, a uh, short while ago. He said this, he said, I worry about so many Christians who don't want more of God, they want more from God. And I've got to ask, is that me? I've got to ask, God reveal, is that something that's in my heart? It's something we can all stumble into. And we need Holy Spirit's help to keep Jesus in our gaze. He knows we're human and he's there to help us. And we just, he just wants us to follow him simply for who he is and not just what we get out of it. Which is what these ladies teach us because that's what they're doing. They're following him because of who he is. He's their Lord and that's it. That's enough for them. Let's just take a look at, uh, let's take a look at this little list of names. It's quite a diverse mix even just amongst two or three of them. They're quite, quite diverse ladies. For, uh, first one. Mary Magdalene, famous name. We've all heard of Mary Magdalene. Most people on the planet have heard of Mary Magdalene, probably. Unfortunately, she's famous for a very, very unfair, dodgy, sexualized reputation throughout history, notably since Pope Gregory, a few hundred years later, he preached this sermon where he makes some nutty leaps of logic. He puts two and two together and comes up with 17. And since then, she's just acquired this reputation that is just unfair and... It's, there's no real evidence for it at all. But what we do know, even just from these few words here, we do know that she's someone who, for whatever reason, had become seriously demonized. We do know that for sure. And that's something that doesn't happen by accident. It's, it happens by a series of traumatic experiences and or choices. It's a combo of those kind of things. People don't trip over and fall on a demon. Oh, that's you stuffed. Not to trivialize it, but it, it doesn't work like that. Demonization of whatever sort, let alone severe like this, that's about a lifestyle and a volley of horrendous choices or, and or abuses. And she didn't end up with one, she ended up with a whole netball team's worth, seven of them. This is pretty serious. So here we nevertheless, we do know that we have a woman whose life thus far, until she met with Jesus, had led to extreme demonization of whatever background that might have been. It doesn't have to be sexual, there are other kinds of sin. <laughs> But whatever happened, she ended up in severe demonization, which would have left her broken, most likely ostracized, and very certainly supremely lost spiritually. And so Mary was stuck. And she needed God himself, Jesus, to rescue her and to release her, which he has clearly done. It says so. That's what he's done for her. Seven demons came out of her. And so in so doing, and then through her chosen commitment to him in return, she then becomes the woman to whom Jesus himself, upon appearing for the first time after his resurrection from the empty grave, 
She's the one he first appears to, and he ordains her to be the first person to go and break this wonderful news to everyone else. Mary goes from this woman who's in demonic bondage to someone who gets to be the first to bear the greatest news in history about the risen king. That's what he does for her. But right now in chapter 8, she doesn't know that. Here, she's just one of the family, sticking close to her beloved Lord and, and, and giving of her own pocket to help serve and support and help. Not because of what she's going to get out of it. She doesn't know all that. She doesn't know what's to come. Just simply because of who he is. He's my king. He's my Lord. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to do what I can to play a part. And so again, Jesus, Jesus should always be the main attraction when we get up in the mornings. And when we go to bed, and when we go to work, and when we gather as his people. Not the gifts, not the benefits, not the stuff, not the bling of Christianity even. But more importantly, the person. Him, Jesus. Another question, how much of my heart is consumed by him rather than what I get from him? It's a big question I'm asking myself. I've been asking myself for the past fortnight while I've been looking at this. Where am I at? Lord, help me. Mary helps teach us that. But then, in another way, <coughs> Joanna does too. Joanna, she gets mentioned later on in Luke chapter 24, verse 10. We discover she gets caught up in Mary's kind of slipstream. As Mary gets sent by Jesus, go and tell everyone I'm alive. Joanna gets caught up in that. She joins the chorus. He's alive. Mary's seen him. She joins this anthem. She gets caught up in that tailwind. It's brilliant. But who is she? Well, Joanna, we're told here, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. Now, Herod, the Tetrarch, he's the appointed ruler of Galilee, the whole region of Galilee. He's rich and he's powerful. And his household manager, therefore, would be intelligent and responsible and not without his own status and respect. So Joanna here, she too, she's not without resources, she's not without influence, so she has a privileged position amongst the upper class in that palace. Now, just got to note who that Herod is. This Herod, he's the son of the man who commanded um, infanticide to try and wipe out baby Jesus back in the day, 30 years earlier. And then this um, particular um, Herod, the, the, the son now himself, he's the guy who beheads John the Baptist for having called him out on his incestuous marriage. This, this Herod is from a lineage and personally of his own heart. He is not a fan of holiness he is not a fan of God's prophetic interventions. And when later on at his trial, when Jesus is arrested and he gets presented before Herod, Herod wants Jesus to act like a performing ma magician. That's all he wants. Perform a miracle. Do something. Which he doesn't get. <laughs> Jesus isn't going to be a performing monkey to him. This man, he is antagonistic to the gospel. And so we have Joanna here. As a Christian, as a follower of Christ, at some point she's met with him and been healed by him and she's now devoted to him. She is positioned as a sold-out believer in these cults of a very powerful adversary. She's well-connected. She's in the know. And it's, it's generally agreed it's, um, it's, she's most likely the, the source for Luke's information about Jesus' trial. She got access to conversations and areas of the palace and that that other people didn't. She's probably the eyewitness he got some of that information from. She's a spy in the enemy's camp. So what I love here is actually Christ is for everyone, remember? The invite is for all. 
And while the poor remain marginalised and see Jesus goes out of his way to ensure they get attention and that they get raised up both physically and spiritually, quietly, he's also ensuring that those who are poor in spirit but also have a fat bank account, he's ensuring that they're not without an invite too. It's grace even in that palace. And history has it, the other, outside, of the, outside of scripture, there's other historical documents that support that chooser, her husband, he lost his position in the royal palace later on because of Joanna's conversion to Christ and her bold witnessing for Jesus in, in that household. We don't know that for sure, but that's, that's what other documents tell us. But even here, just within these few words, we see a woman of that position happy to be publicly recognised as one who is utterly devoted to Jesus and is doing what she can to play her part in the proclamation of this great life-saving message as it makes its way around the country. And for a woman of that time and of that position to do that is scandalous. And she's just like, this is who I am now, devoted to him. She's sold out for Jesus regardless of where that lands her. And again, whatever it is that gets us up in the morning, we've just got to ask ourselves, is it primarily, primarily Jesus and his good news that gets me out of bed each morning? If not, why not? You know, like with Joanna, I've got to ask, do the consequences of my faith being public at any moment keep me quiet? Or am I following him out loud regardless, knowing he'll catch me? That's what jo Joanna teaches us in just a very small number of words. She's truly devoted for no other reason than Jesus himself. And finally, he mentions Susanna. We don't know anything else. We literally don't know anything else about Susanna other than that she too had been healed by Jesus and she now toured with him from town to town, ensuring he and the rest of the people don't go without. She's of note enough to have her own name recorded for whatever reason, but we do know that she and Mary and Joanna, they are just the tip of the iceberg of what it then says, and many others. There's a whole host of them doing this. Now, why, why has Luke felt it so important to include these few verses and mention these women? Well, he's a man who's quite meticulous in his compiling of his biography of Jesus, uh, having interviewed countless witnesses, and creating this finely detailed account. And he includes details that aren't filler, but these are things that help paint the picture. And here he's painting a picture of what it is truly like to follow Jesus. He's saying, here is a place where your background, your status, whether it's high or low, or from a royal palace or a life of destitution, whatever your experiences, whatever you've done, or whatever has been done to you, none of those things dictate how much Jesus wants you and is devoted to you. So much so that he was willing to give up all he had, including his own life, in order to win you over. Because we're talking about devotion today, but <laughs> you want to know what devotion really looks like? Don't even look to these women. Look to Jesus. That's where we find true devotion. Because what have they seen? They'd seen someone who is overwhelmingly devoted to them in character and in word and in action. And for us, getting to live now on the other side of Easter, we really get to see for certain the God who gave himself for us, who's utterly devoted to us so much, he gave everything. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, While we were still sinners, Christ died 
for us. While you were a sinner, Jesus died for you. While we were still broken by our own design, our own choices, and bearing a resultant spiritual stench that is ranked to his holy constitution, even then, nevertheless, the everlasting, holy, non-sleeping God stepped into a body of flesh that got tired and felt pain, and he battled a host of animosity and rejection and still gave himself completely, even in death, that we might be cleansed and freed. There's devotion. There's devotion for you. And it's more than that. It's more than just being freed. Revelation chapter 1, second part of verse 5, says, To him who loves us, present tense, not him who loved us and did this nice thing, loves us continuously, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. He loves us, present tense, doesn't stop. He's freed us by his own blood, and then he didn't just free us to roam without purpose, but to be caught up as a part of his royal kingdom, as priests to Father God himself. There's commitment, there's devotion, and it's ongoing. And this is something that Mary and Joanna and Susanna uh, and, Susanna and all the others they caught a glimpse of this. That as Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. That was somewhat veiled when he was in his human form. But these women still got a taste of that. And it was enough for them. As the psalm says, taste and see that the Lord is good. They tasted and they saw and they were captivated. And they became sold out and devoted as a result. If we remember that woman from the previous chapter pouring her expensive ointment over Jesus' feet and weeping. That's all she did. She never asked for a thing. That's all she was doing. She was so completely absorbed with who he was. Full stop. And these women today that Luke's gone on to spotlight, they weren't in it to get anything out of it other than Jesus himself and spreading that wonderful news elsewhere, doing what they can to be part of that mission to ensure that others don't miss out and they see it too. They were so wholeheartedly devoted that they gave up their resources and their time and their energy and their reputation to the family on mission, risking everything that they might help spur on his wonderful good news further and wider and louder. What an example of devotion and love, born and bolstered by an even greater one, Jesus himself. So just as I finish, and Rachel is going to come up and lead us through some songs in just a moment to help us just fix our eyes on him. Just remember, it doesn't matter who you are, whatever your position, your station, your reputation, you are equally loved by God. And his intent for you is the same as for any other person, to be a beloved and valued member of his family equally. And he's committed to you more than you can imagine. But even so, within that, if you've given your life to him, if, you, if you're following him, we can still do that falteringly and we can still stumble, can't we? And we can be in danger of only coming to Jesus when there's something we need rather than because of who he is. Just need to ask ourselves as we approach these songs, as we start singing, just keep thinking, do I see Jesus as useful or do I see him as beautiful? It's a big question. And then on the back of that, we can then ask, well, okay, what part has he got for me? How can I play my part? What can I give? What can I contribute to his mission on the move? Simply not because of what I get in return, but simply that I get him. May these women spur us 
into a deeper appreciation of who he is, what he's calling us into. Let's look to him. Those wonderful things he's done for us, the wonderful answers to prayer that we get along the way, they're all great, but may he eclipse even them. May he captivate us again and again. Let me just pray, and then we'll fix our eyes through some songs. Jesus, we look to you, and we see you for who you are. The Almighty, the Ancient of Days, the Everlasting One who dwells in unapproachable light, and yet you still make yourself approachable. The One who stepped down into our brokenness to lift us up and bring us home. We thank you and we celebrate you, and by Holy Spirit's help this morning, may we see an even greater glimpse, may we get a greater taste that we might see how good you are. We love you, but we want to learn how to love you more. So will you help us as we sing these songs? Holy Spirit, do something in us. Help us to linger. Help us to not rush. And help us to see you, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.